Okay, everybody, it is good to be with you, and hello. <laughs> Why don't we uh, open our Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 14 is where we find ourselves today. For those of you who are guests, first time or so, um, just know we take books of the Bible and kind of work through them. So we're in chapter 14 today because we've gone 1 through 13 so far over the past almost year. And so we uh, find ourselves in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Because the passage is a little shorter, I'll be able to read all 11 verses, and then I'll pray and we'll go uh, at it uh, together. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the rows, on a row near you, so you can ask a neighbor for one and uh, snag that, and that will help you follow along, because we will seek to understand, believing this is God's Word, we'll seek to understand what God has to say to us today. So I'll begin reading uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. The Word of God says this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited which he noticed when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, He may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me pray. Father, as we sing that song, I say it back to you. After all, you are constant. And after all, you are only good. And after all, you are sovereign and in control. And not for a moment will you forsake your children. That is astounding. And we are thankful that you sent your son to die so that we might not ever have to be forsaken, abandoned. But you will always be with us and for us. And so in that same mentality and attitude, I ask that you would come. And I ask that you would humble our hearts where they are proud. And Father, I pray that you would give us a longing for the exaltation that only you can give on that last day when we will see you face to face in all of your glory. Lord, I pray that you would not just teach our brains that you would change our hearts. Please, work within us in this moment. 
I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Symptoms are funny. You can regularly look at something and begin to say that, oh, these are signs or symptoms that something is coming. So I was reading an article um, on BBC World News, and there was a guy who was attending a festival in India. And while he was there at the festival, he was there with his family, and his family kind of um, had scattered about, and he saw this guy sitting over here that said, temporary tattoos. So he personally didn't like tattoos, and his wife didn't like them either. So he thought it would be funny to get a temporary tattoo to just really try to bother her. So that was the goal. So he goes and he goes to this tattoo uh, man who is getting ready to uh, give tattoos to anybody who came. And he said, so are these tattoos temporary? And the guy said, yes, 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 completely temporary. So he said, do they wash off? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, now if you're having to ask in your heart this many questions, you probably should know this, this is a sign. So he says, okay, they're not real tattoos, right? No, 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 not real tattoos. They will go away, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so he gets there, rolls up his sleeve, goes right here, and he says, I would like a heart with my wife's name in the middle of it. Okay, so sits there, and the guy starts going at it, and as he begins to start, he brings out the ink, and he was like, that smells like ink. I guess it's just how you do it. That makes sense. And so, okay, sign number two, something's going funky. And so then he starts working on his shoulder. Now he said, I had heard that tattoos really hurt when they happen, and so this didn't hurt. So I was like, okay, that's, this is a temporary gig. So, you know, he just kept going, but he kept looking at it, and it looked like really real. <laughs> and so he said that he went down and he tried to swipe it and nothing moved. And he was like, oh no. And so then he tried to pull his arm away from this guy and this guy held on even tighter. <laughs> and he was like, no, no. And he pulled his arm away. And at this point, he had like three quarters of a heart and one line of his wife's name. I don't know why the order, but that's how it rolled. And so he has like one little mark that was the beginning of his wife's name. And he looks at it, and now he begins to see the skin is starting to raise up. And it's starting to get red around the edges. So then he quickly looks on YouTube, how do you get rid of a temporary tattoo? So he starts getting some alcohol and starts rubbing it on the shoulder. Nothing happens. He tries like three or four other remedies. And now all of a sudden, this temporary tattoo is a permanent fixture on this man's shoulder or arm. And you look at this, and he was like, okay, when did it finally land on you, bro, that this was not what you should have done? And he's like, I just have a permanent reminder of my stupidity. That was the title of the article. I have a permanent reminder of my stupidity. But there are signs all the time that kind of point that something is coming. Some of you women who have been pregnant, you know that there are signs that tell you the baby is on the way. Some of you, if you've ever been to a concert, you know, there are signs when you're at the concert that now the mingling is over, the concert is about to start. And some of you who are wondering, am I sick? You are like coughing and you're fatigued and your nose is running. And those are signs that you're sick. Well, today Jesus shows us seven signs. Seven symptoms of sickness, but it's not a physical sickness. It's a spiritual one. 
It's seven signs that you've caught the cold of legalism. That you have contracted the disease of religion. And as he begins to tell this story, he begins to expose that we have all caught this. But he also begins to expose that he is the great physician and the healer when it comes to being enslaved and trapped by legalism. And when we forget that the love of Jesus Christ for sinners heals our sickness. So let's dive in and look here before we get to the seven signs. We got to get to kind of the context. Um, it's important to know how the story fits in, and it's important to know the main players. Any good story, you want to know the characters in the setting. So here we are. Understanding the context of Luke 14, it says this, the very first word, one Sabbath. So you have to understand at this point, the Sabbath day was the day that was meant to be set aside for the Lord. It was a day that was said, six days you shall work, and on this day you shall rest from your work. The point of the resting from the work was so that with your body and heart and all of your activity, you would be saying to the Lord, I trust you more than I trust myself to provide for me. And so the Sabbath was an important day to set aside to the Lord, but it was meant to articulate even more than the rest of the body. It was meant to articulate the rest of the heart in the Lord who provides for his people. Now, here's the problem. Let's keep looking at the context. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, so, we're at the Pharisees' house. The Pharisees were the law understanders and the law keepers and the law regulators, okay? And this, is guy, this guy is the ruler of the Pharisees, which means one of three things. He's either kind of an official in the synagogue, or he is the head of the whole synagogue, or he could even be the chief priest. Nonetheless, his position is important, and he has got a, a place of prestige, and so, it says they were dining at his house. Now, interesting, Jesus is found regularly hanging out with Pharisees. He ate with them, and they wanted him over. But why did they want him over? It says here, they were watching him carefully. The Pharisees went from being enamored by him to being bothered by him, to being fascinated by his power and might and goodness to being annoyed, bothered, angered by how he was contradicting them almost at every turn. And so now they're watching him carefully to see what he's going to do because there's a man in the house. The man in the house has dropsy. Dropsy is like a condition of massive water retention where you have swollen uh, limbs or tissue of ex with excess fluid in it. And it's usually not a disease in and of itself, but some symptom of some further disease. We know nothing else other than he had massive water retention and it was limiting his abilities and it was creating a lot of pain. Now, the Pharisees are watching what in the world they're going to do. Now, what's interesting is verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. These people who are supposed to keep the law and regulate the law. He responds to them saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
Now, you didn't miss something. The lawyers and the Pharisees weren't talking. Either there's a conversation that we weren't given and Jesus is responding to it, but more than likely, he knows what's going on in their nugget. He gets what's going on in their brain, and so now he addresses their internal questions without even hearing them speak. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they were conflicted because they knew what they believed, but they also, some even think they might have brought this guy in to just see what Jesus would do. So there's this sense where they can't appear with a lack of compassion or to be trying to one-up Jesus or, or dupe him, so they just remain silent. But we know their answer because just one chapter previously in Luke chapter 13, they tell us their answer. It goes like this. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, angry, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So it's not up for debate what they thought should happen. They thought Jesus should leave this guy alone because they thought this was somehow breaking the law. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 4. They remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So Jesus knew they didn't like this, and he went for it anyway. In verse 5, and he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to it. Now, if you've been with us, you might have actually heard this same kind of phraseology two weeks ago. At the beginning of Luke chapter 13, when Jesus is addressing the Sabbath, he says, remember there was a woman who had a disabled spirit, and Jesus heals her, and they get angry at him for that. And he says, which of you would not untie your ox in order that the ox might get water? What was his point? For that story, it was a point of Jesus specializes in setting free, in releasing from bondage untying the spiritual heart. Here, same kind of analogy. Which one of you who has an ox or a son and they fall into a well? Now, what's this image meaning? It's an image of rescuing from peril. Rescuing when you could not rescue yourself. A little bit different of an emphasis. And I believe this is why he tells the next part of chapter 14. This is why Luke pushes verses 7 through 11 and why Jesus now says, let me tell you a parable. Do you know what a parable is? A parable is a way that Jesus told stories where those who had the Spirit of God would be able to understand and discern most of the time their spiritual meaning, but where it also eclipsed part of the meaning for those who were not spiritually bent. And so he tells this story and in this story, it has a spiritual punchline. But it sounds very unspiritual what he's getting ready to say. Let's look at it. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor. And he said to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Get the scenario. You've got a table, and when people sat down in those days, 
you might read in the scriptures, they reclined at table. Many times when they ate, they actually leaned on the person behind them because it was really tight, okay? And so they would lean back. And so then it got really awkward when everybody had to move just so that somebody could change spots. It would kind of be like, let's say we're at a concert and you purchased the front row seat. You paid high dollars for that seat because you wanted to be middle and you wanted to be front. But somebody comes in and they're sitting in your seat. And now all of a sudden, you're stuck at the very back. Now, some of you have done the reverse when you go to sports events and you pay for like the top row and then you look to see how close you can get to the front. And then you're like, man, when they come back and they oust you, same on airplanes, you know, it's just like, oh, this, I, I, I sprawl out here like a king. And then that person comes and you're like, man, you know, and you're kind of shamed out of your seat and you got to go sit in the back next to the wing when it's really loud and stuff. So this is what's happening. Imagine at the concert. When right before the concert guy is supposed to start, he gets up, this massively famous person, and he says, everyone, I really can't start the music right now because you have taken their seat. And I call them out, and so I need you to stand up, please. Can you imagine the shame? And then I need you to walk. Now you come all the way up. Come back here, and you sit up here. This is, this is what's happening. It's that kind of awkwardness, that kind of shame and noticeability. And Jesus is trying to protect them from this kind of scenario by, by saying this. Give your place, he says, verse 10, but when you are invited, go and sit in what? Verse 10, you can say it out loud. The lowest place, Okay. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Punchline, verse 11. I want you to read it out loud with me. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's my question. Is Jesus' main aim table etiquette? Is his main aim making sure that you don't get embarrassed the next time you go to a wedding feast? Is that his main aim? Remember, he told a parable, a story with a spiritual punchline, so that those who would have eyes to see and ears to hear would hear this very message. And what is the message? The message is, you can do a humble action without a humble heart. And I'm after the humble heart. Can't I? I can say, hey, go in front of me. No, you take this seat. Do that. And then I can say, I'm going to be the last to go through the line and eat because I want to serve you. And I can say, I have sacrificed hours and hours and hours to prepare this message for you. And I can do it so that I would receive the credit, or I can do it because I love my Savior and I want to serve someone else. Same actions, totally different motives. 
Jesus is giving us a spiritual punchline, the issue of spiritual humility, not just a physical place of humility. He uses the physical place of humility to teach the lesson about what kind of humility is greatest and what type of exaltation is necessary. Because you can also be physically exalted, but not spiritually exalted. What do I mean by that? You can get the promotion. You can be recognized. You can be honored by people in all kinds of cases. Even revered as a spiritual person, but not have spiritual exaltation. That is, not have the peace of God, not have the joy of God, and not have the affirmation and favor of God upon your heart. Eventually, exaltation is you can look as spiritual as you want, but on that last day, you may never be exalted to be with Him forever in heaven. What's He after? He's after a group of people, the Pharisees, remember the context in the story, who specialize in outward obedience with a heart that doesn't run after Jesus. They specialize in making sure people know right and wrong and follow the letter of the law, but miss the fact that the law was to point to a person, Jesus Christ, standing right there before them, and they're trying to trap him rather than serve him, follow, and love him. Jesus is telling who? Who does it say he's telling? Verse 7, and he told the parable to those who were invited. Why? Because the Pharisees were the leaders. And as they led, people were following. And this ruler, great prominence, and many times with prominence comes persuasion and influence. You've got these people sitting at the table and he's saying to them, don't follow their lead. Instead, you need to understand what it means to humble yourself. And what it means for the Lord to exalt you. Let me say it this way. Humility is not first. And I believe this is Jesus' punchline. Because if you remember. There's a sickness that he's seeking to identify. And that sickness is the peril of pride. And so he tells this story. To keep these people from falling into this sickness, it is this punchline. Humility is not first a humility of action, but a humility of heart. An exaltation is not first an exaltation of earthly position, but an exaltation of the heart. A gaze towards heaven. It is the longing and receiving of the peace and joy of God that only comes from Him. And so he's saying, you who have spiritual processors, you who can think spiritually about this, process it this way. If not, you will catch the cold that the Pharisees have. It is the cold of legalism. It is the disease of religion. Pharisee flu as it may be. Now, the disease. Let's make sure you understand the disease. The sickness that these symptoms are indicating is not law itself. Our culture has to have this qualification because 
Anyone tells me what to do, our culture might say, I'll do the opposite just because I want to rule my own life, even if it's wise. Children, you've done that before. Don't want to listen to my parents. I want my own way. I want my own independence. And your ears are shut to the fact that this might be wise. Why is that? It's because from youngest all the way to oldest, there is this recoil from having to be told what to do. But I want you to know this wonderful truth. Jesus, His commands give life. They're not burdensome. And if you reject Jesus' commands, they will lead to the destruction of the human heart. They will destroy your peace and joy and they will lead you into a wasteland of misery. Commands are not bad. They're actually wonderful. But it's the commands of Jesus that need to be obeyed. The problem is, we're not speaking about that. We're speaking about the experience of many who lean on their law-keeping, on their ability to do right and wrong as a means of how you judge yourself and how you judge others. I'll say it again. The sickness is those who lean on their goodness, on their abilities to do right and wrong as the means for how they judge themselves and their value and how they place value on other people. And saddest of all, just like the Pharisees who missed Jesus, this is the greatest consequence of having caught the cold of legalism. We fixate on the law and we miss the lawgiver. So let's go through some of these signs that you might have caught the cold of legalism. Symptom number one, we use God rather than love God. We use God rather than love God. In Luke 14, the Sabbath had as its sole aim to point to the God who can give rest and provide for you. And the Pharisees used that as a measure of how good they could keep the law and missed the God that the whole law was meant to point to. They missed God altogether. And many of us, in the missing of God, we begin to use God rather than love God. Women, some of you understand what this is like. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller. He used these two examples. Women, some of you have experienced this before. Where a guy shows interest in you. He comes around and he's very flattering. He might give you gifts. You might say the things that you want to hear. But if you are not willing to give him what he wants when he wants it. Then what's his response? He bolts. He's out. Why is that? Because he was using you. For what he could get. I do believe this is why God has set up that sex should be saved until marriage is because the way you can tell if someone loves you for you is their willingness to wait for you. And I've counseled with many people and I've had tons of people who come to me with massive regret 
because of their actions before marriage. And I haven't had any who have come to me with regret when they have waited until after marriage. Why is that? Because what is more important than sexual intimacy is friendship to make a marriage last. Not to diminish the one, but to raise up the other. Friendship is what is most important. And you, some of you have experienced being used. When someone was just trying to get something. And this is where we have to be careful. Others of you in the business world. You've seen people get near to you. Befriend you. They're looking for maybe a job. Or they're looking for your connections to be their connections. And they were really close to you and you guys did some things together. But when it came clear that they weren't going to get that job or they weren't going to get that position, what happened? They're out. You've officially been networked. You've been used. And it hurts. Because all of us deep down, we've been crafted to be loved for who we are, not just what we can give. But this is the symptom of the sickness of legalism is when we use God for what He can give us rather than loving Him for who He is. This is exactly what Jeremiah said was the guilt of the people of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2, he says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people... My people have committed two evils. And here is the first evil. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the greatest evil in the universe. That God says, I am a fountain and I will satisfy you. Every single thirst you have, nothing else will satisfy like me. Come to me, drink from me so that then you can enjoy everything else. Don't forsake me. But when God doesn't deliver in the right way or in the right time, you out. You bolt. And either you just say, forget him, he's not worth it, or you put him on trial and you call every one of his actions into question. The author of Job would say, who made you counselor to God? When did God become your servant? And when did you become wiser than him? Oh, repent that you have forsaken the God of the Bible who promises, I do good to you and I love you. And when you wanted to call foul, I killed my son for you to say, I love you more than you would ever know. Don't forsake me. One of the major signs of the one who is stuck with the sickness of legalism is that they use God more than they love him. And it says in Jeremiah 2 that the second great evil is they hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is that? It's God as fountain. You're not cutting it. You're not giving it to me when I want it or in the way I want it. You're not cutting it. So I'm skeptical towards you. And since I'm skeptical, I'm going to make my own water. My own basin to hold water in. I'm going to craft something that will satisfy me in the way that it will satisfy me when I want it. And it's exactly what the Pharisees did. 
It's some type of system where built upon your performance, you can feel secure about yourself and you can judge others to help that insecurity. Pharisees did it. Created a law that was meant to point to Jesus and instead of it leading them to Jesus, it led them to how much they could keep the law. And they leaned on it as their means of salvation. Oh, dear friends, some who catch this cold of legalism, they run into license and they just live however they want because they believe God was a liar and he didn't give what they wanted when they wanted it. And others, they fall off the horse onto legalism and they try to get their security by being good and what they can do. And that leads to the second symptom Second symptom of the sickness of legalism, and that is we emphasize doing more than trusting. Emphasize doing more than trusting. And this is what many of us, when you hear the word legalism, this is what many of us think of when we think of legalism. And that is adding things extra that earn us acceptance from God beyond faith alone. So, God has crafted this world that says, your performance is a wreck. Let's just own that, okay? Just sit there for a second. Your performance is a C- minus at best. And so is mine. Your performance is a wreck. And he says, because of that, I sent my only son who would perform perfectly to then die the death that your sins should have incurred. And he rose from the dead to show that he has the power to set you free, make you new and wash you clean. But some. And all he says is trust in me and my work for the forgiveness of sins, but some want to trust in Him, and then smuggle something else in there as the grounds for God's acceptance. And lay that on others, lay their convictions upon others as a means of your acceptance of them. So, you see this in churches, sadly, all the time. How you dress. Some people will look down. I'm thankful that from the beginning, this church has not given a rip. Please have on clothes. That's really helpful. But other than that, the bar is pretty low. Other churches, it's about how much money you can give. Oh, I mean, there are churches that do certain lines and lines of $5, $20, $100 lines and to show that you can, if you're really worth something, you're going to be in the big dollar line as a means of displaying what you can do. Others will do it by fasting in public and telling everybody how much they fast. And there's just this massive list. Some, of, some people are like, I'm only worth something if I'm serving on this team or if I'm serving in this way or if I'm able to be up front and preach. And all of a sudden, their worth gets wrapped up in what they can do. And they emphasize doing more than trusting. And friends, yes, yes, yes. The heart that trusts in Jesus will sacrifice their lives in love for people. And that will mean that, yes, you spend time in the Word and you spend time in prayer and you spend time serving and you spend time loving others, but you do not do it in order to be accepted. You do it because you already are accepted. 
And that's the freeing difference. But some people, you can know that you've kind of caught this cold when you're constantly feeling this sense of guilt, even if you're not sure exactly what you've done wrong. And here's the phrase that I hear constantly when people have caught this cold of legalism and they're emphasizing doing more than trusting is when they keep saying, I'm not doing enough. I call that word the scissors that cut out grace. It's just like you cut grace out of the picture. I'm not doing enough. Who's the measure of enough? You hadn't thought about it. Most of us are, I'm not doing enough because I'm not doing what you expect of me. Or I'm not doing enough because I'm not doing what they're doing. Or I'm not doing enough because I just feel this sense of guilt and I'm not sure why. So that must mean I must do more. Maybe you're feeling a sense of guilt because you haven't embraced a God who forgives. And loves you just as you are. Yes, some of you need to feel guilty There are things to feel guilty over, not drawing near to God, not looking for Him, rejecting Him and promoting yourself, refusing to forgive, refusing to love. Yes, 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 repent of those things. But many of you walk around in a cloud of guilt and you're not even sure why. It could be that you've caught the cold of legalism and you need to be set free because the legalist begins to hide. The legalist is gripped by fear. What's a third sign? What's a third sign that you might have caught the cold of legalism? It's when we think more about what to avoid than what to go after. This is exactly what happened with the Pharisees. What were they looking at with Jesus? They were hoping to catch him in what? Something he did wrong. They wanted him to do wrong. They were trying to Catch him in the doing of wrong. That's why Jesus gives the punchline at the end. I am the Savior that should be gone after. Not the one who should be trying to be convinced of the guilt. And this is something that we have so backwards in the Christian church regarding how change happens. And it is this fascination and fixation that if I look in the mirror long enough, I'm going to change. If I look at how bad I am long enough, then that's going to produce change. And so what we do is we fix upon all that we've got to avoid. I've got to stop doing this, got to stop doing this, got to stop doing this, got to stop doing this. But we miss the point. Why are you doing what you're doing? It's because you've got a wayward affection. There's a man named Tom. Thomas Chalmers, who says, what we need, and nobody talks like this anymore, he's an old dead guy, but he says, the expulsive power of a new affection. We need a new affection that expels an old affection. This is how change comes. Not by looking at what to avoid, but by looking at something so beautiful that he, and going after him, expels the desire to go after something that never delivers. This is change. Biblical change, I would probably argue 20 20% of saying, that's wrong, and I shouldn't do that. And I need to figure out what idols are going on in my heart. They're like, why am I doing what I'm doing? That's 20%. is turning from that stuff and running headlong after Jesus. 
That's why reading the Bible is important. It's not to impress your neighbor. It's because you're desperate. And you, like me, forget. You forget what is most valuable and what is most precious. And so Jesus puts them in two categories. Paul puts them in two categories. Putting off and putting on. It is putting off this. That's 20% of change. But the 80% is putting on Jesus, going after Him. Making what He loves, what you love. What He hates, what you hate. That's only cultivated through a relationship with the living God. But oh dear friends, we think more about what to avoid than what to go after. And so we end up falling over and over and over. My wife teaches school. She teaches a Bible class at a local school. And there she had a student who was caught cheating. And I've got a couple of illustrations from her class this week. But in this one, this student was caught cheating, and my wife had to approach her, and the girl ended up becoming really soft-hearted, and my wife looked at her, and as the girl was walking out of the door, my wife said, I want you to know, I will not hold this against you. And she said, the girl immediately said, I've never had a teacher say that to me before. Why? Because if there's any place about your performance, it's school. But to be in the very context where performance is everything and to be told, you're not that girl who's a cheater. You're that girl who's made in the image of a beautiful Savior. And I will not hold this mistake over your head anymore. Let's live in the freedom of forgiveness. To be told that, there couldn't be a starker contrast. And this is what the message that I think we need to have this morning is that if we're focused so much on what we should avoid, we miss the fact that what He gives to us is the fact that I forgive you and I love you and I don't hold this over you if you turn and trust in me. This is where the fourth symptom comes. We're more characterized by insecurity than confidence in Christ. Or another way to say it, we're more characterized by shame than by walking in forgiveness. Now, where do I get this? I actually don't get this from this passage. However, verse 11, that is, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted, is repeated verbatim four chapters later in Luke 18. And it's repeated in the context of the Pharisees. So I want to go there, and I want to say these are some other signs that Jesus, with the same punchline, is addressing. And in Luke 18, we begin to see that verse 9 of Luke 18, it says, and he told this parable. You see? Parable, parable. And he's telling it in the context of the Pharisees. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, here's the parable. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Could there be a more arrogant statement in the Scriptures? I'm thankful that you're a loser and I'm not. 
I mean, can we even call that praying? But that's what this is. God, I thank you that I'm not like those other men, those extortioners, unjust adulterers. You can even see him getting closer to this guy who's hunkered in the corner. Or even tax collectors. Such a bozo. So, and that's me. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, now look at the contrast. This is meant to be like night and day. The tax collector, he's standing far off. And he's standing far off, and he would not even lift up his eyes. What's that a sign of? Shame. Massive shame. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In his shame, he only knew one place to go. God, I need your mercy. And here's the punchline that Jesus gives. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's getting at what does it look like to be spiritually humble, to crave after spiritual exaltation, because he's preying upon our desire to be exalted. But he's saying it is a spiritual exaltation. What does it look like? It looks like that we are characterized more by security than a sense of confidence in ourselves, or to say it in the negative, more characterized by insecurity than by confidence in Christ, more characterized by shame than by forgiveness. Here's the other story from my wife's class. There was this girl who comes into the classroom. And as she comes in, she, was, she had some tears. She came to my wife and she said this. She said, I don't even know how to open up my Bible and to understand what's in it. And I'm so sorry. And my wife was like, that's what we're here for. It's Bible class. I don't expect you to know everything. And I just thought about that in light of how you come to church. Feeling as if you have to know everything. I know you're not going to get everything I say. I don't get everything I say. That's hyperbole. But oh, the burden of you feeling like you have to have it all figured out or you have to be everywhere, you have to know everything. This is a place where mess is welcomed. And I want you to be okay with not being perfect. We're just not going to stay there. We're going to fight against sin. We're going to run after Jesus. But this is a place where messy people are welcome. Where people who don't have it all together and don't understand all parts of the Bible are welcomed. We want you here. And it is the cold of legalism that says, no, I have to show that I have no weaknesses. And I have to show that I have it all figured out. And I can't say that I don't understand something. Because then I will be what? Less valuable. Less important. This is a symptom that legalism has gripped your heart. You've caught the cold and you need to be set free by the great physician, the healer, Jesus Christ. Oh, what it is when you're that Pharisee, all hunker or that 
tax collector, all hunkered down in shame, and the only thing you know to say is, Lord, have mercy on me. That is all that God wants from you. Just say, I'm weak. I don't get it. I need your mercy upon me. That will set you free. That will bring some healing to the sickness of legalism. The fifth one we also see in this, and that is we look at people with more judgment than love. We look at people with more judgment than love. You see that in the passage I just read, right? I'm thankful that I'm not like this tax collector. You see that. What is he doing? He's judging him as a loser because he's a sinner. And he's judging himself as really good because he's excelling in keeping laws. And even some of the laws he cites he keeps are not even laws written in the Bible. They're laws that are extra. How do we know that we have caught this cold? I think there are a couple phrases that kind of tease out this. More judgment than love. Another one would be, there's comparison more than thankfulness. So when you see someone and they've got the goods that you don't have, when you see someone and they're doing better than you, when you're tempted to not be thankful, but to one, just compare yourself and think about who you are not, or you're tempted to want bad for them because they have what you don't have, you've caught the cold of legalism. One that the Pharisees had that led to their death, spiritually speaking. We don't want that, so we must repent of this. We must turn away from this. What's another sign? Another sign is when you have bitterness more than brokenness. That's how you judge sometimes, is when someone has gone against you, you think about their wrongs more than how much they need a Savior. Have you ever had somebody snap at you? Come on. Yeah, you have. And have you snapped at somebody? Uh Uh-huh. Yes, you have. You've snapped. You've been snapped at. So let's just take the first one and not deal with the second right now. I mean, you're snapping. When somebody snapped at you, most of the time they said something sinful and hurtful. And that's exactly right. And your mind goes there. And your mind is like, that's not just. That's wrong. And that was a sin. And I want to affirm all of that. However, where do you stay? If you stay at that level, I think you're missing the greatest message of the person who has snapped in anger. The greatest message is they are hurting. Why did they snap? Because they're out of control. Why did they snap? Because they feel attacked and they don't have security in Christ. Why did they snap? Because they're afraid of something. It's an exposure that the heart is sinful and that they're in need of a Savior. And you know that you have caught the cold of legalism when you can't get past their wrongs and their sin in order to say, this is a person who is hurting. How can I show them the love and forgiveness of a washing clean, forgiving Savior? Bitterness more than brokenness. And I think this begins to lead us to the sixth sign. And that is, 
when repentance is seen as perfection rather than a brokenness and a repentance to Jesus. Here's what I mean. What I mean is, if I come to you and I say, I'm sorry, I should not have said this to you, I should not have been late, I should not have done this. When I say that, I say, I need your forgiveness. Deep down, there's an expectation after that. And that expectation might show that you've caught the cold of legalism. Is the expectation that that person will be perfect from there on? Check yourself. I had to check me. I think many times we equate repentance with perfection. That is, they will never do it again. But how many times have you genuinely been broken over your sin? How many times have you genuinely said, I am sorry, I should not have done this, and then only to find out a day, a week, a month later, you lost self-control and you did it again? Every one of you, and me too. Did you repent? Some would be tempted to say, no, you didn't repent. That's not how the Scriptures paint repentance. Luke chapter 17, one chapter right before Luke 18, it says this. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. It is right and good to say, this sinning hurt me, and it is wrong. It's not wrong to say. How you say it is everything, but it's not wrong to say it. Rebuke him. And if he repents, it says, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must what? Forgive him. We have a culture that tells you to write people off. And Jesus says just the opposite. He says, that is a legalistic, lean on your own performance mentality. I need you to be set free because repentance is not perfection. Here's what repentance is. I am genuinely sorry that this hurt you. I should not have done this and I trust in Jesus to wash me clean and I need his power to walk in a different way. It is a saying, I don't want to do this anymore and if I had to do it over again, I don't want to do it. I'm going this way, but it is not a declaration of perfection. Jesus does not hold you to the standard of perfection and you should not hold your neighbor to the standard of perfection. For if that was the case, we would all be crushed under the weight of our sin. The healing power of Jesus is that He alone was perfect and He died for imperfect people. So if someone sins against you seven times and they're repentant, forgive them seven times over and don't write them off. And if they sin against you eight, the point of the parable is keep forgiving. But oh friends, here's the last one and it leads to healing. When you're more mindful of your actions than Christ's love and power in you and for you. Here's I think a way to test this. When you've done wrong and you say you're forgiven or you say that um, when you say I'm wrong and I need forgiveness. Now, where does your mind go after that? 
Do you fixate on all that you did wrong? Or do you set your mind upon a God who has forgiven you and who loves you? I tell you, I fall in this first camp so much. I carry that weight of shame and guilt. Others will have forgiven me. I know my God forgives me. But what I do is I rehearse how wrong I was. And how guilty I feel in my heart. And that means I've caught the cold. But over here, Jesus wants us to remember the power of Christ within us and the love of God for us. This is why he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the love, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. You are loved. Do you not find that shockingly difficult? I've just exposed, dare I say, seven areas that I'm guilty and you're guilty. And yet, the major mantra of the scriptures is, when you were guilty, dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. The shocking thing of Christianity is that we are both sinner and loved. We are guilty and yet forgiven. And he says this, 1 John chapter 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So rather than fix, fixing your eyes upon all of your failures, fix your eyes upon a Savior who is radiantly beautiful and who has forgiven you of much. When you're tempted to be insecure... Believe the fact that he has washed away your shame and guilt and he doesn't want you to come perfect. He wants you to come as you are. Rotten as you are, give him your heart and he will make you new. And remember, when you're tempted to look in judgment upon others, remember that he did not look down in judgment upon you but gave his life for you so that anyone who would trust in him could be forgiven. Isn't it good news that you don't stand under judgment if you're in faith? but you stand forgiven. This is the good news that sets you free from the sickness of religion and the cold of legalism.